Well, today is the last installment of our series uh, on marriage. We have looked at some of what Moses and Solomon and Jesus said on this topic. And today we're rounding out our four-week study by looking at what Paul said on marriage uh, from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. Again, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. <clears throat> the last time you heard this passage, Ephesians 5, read, other than a few minutes ago, was probably at a wedding. I've read those verses dozens of times, standing just two or three feet away from a bride and groom. And because we associate this text so much with weddings, it seems to me that it's very easy to approach this text apart from its context. It's good to be reminded that when the Apostle Paul penned these words, he was not writing them for a wedding day. He was writing them for the Lord's Day. That these words were written for the church, and they are part of a, a larger instruction that Paul is giving in the book of Ephesians for those who are in Christ about how they're to live for Christ. And so to appreciate the passage that we're probably familiar with on wedding days, the, the words, instructions to wives and husbands, I think it's important we go back and get a running start at it. And we see what the apostle is doing in this text. We can really take advantage and, and become clear on what he's saying to wives and husbands if we go back and look at the last sentence right before this passage. Go back to verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That is the main command driving this section. Be filled with the Spirit. Lots of Christians wonder sometimes, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? The Spirit is invisible. The filling is invisible. How do I know this is happening in my life? Well, Paul gives us a, a word picture. Look again at verse 18. What, what does it look like if you're filled with too much wine? He says the result is dissipation, wild living, losing control. If you're filled with too much wine, if you're under the influence of that, it, it can show up in your actions. Drunkenness can result in recklessness and being dangerous and being uncontrolled. So what does it look like then to be filled with the Spirit? Well, Paul says when you're filled with the Spirit, that will also show up in your actions. You say, well, in what way? Look what he says. Be filled with the Spirit, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Spirit-filled Christians enjoy church songs. That's, that's one of the actual results, he says. When the Spirit is at work with you. You ever find yourself washing the dishes, mowing the lawn, and all of a sudden you start thinking of a hymn? some praise song, and you sing it, and you think about it, and it goes through your head, and it's just, it's a, an enjoyable moment. I am 100% convinced that is the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says here. 
Lost people can enjoy the tune of amazing grace, but only spirit-filled Christians can truly enjoy the message of amazing grace. And Paul says, if you're filled with the Spirit, that's one of the ways you know. You're under His influence. You enjoy church songs. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Spirit-filled Christians have an attitude of gratitude. If, if you're filled with the Spirit, he says this is another result. An ungrateful Christian is an unspiritual Christian. When the Spirit is in your life, there will be thanksgiving on your lips because grumbling and complaining are a work of the flesh, not the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, there'll be thanksgiving. And then he says Spirit-filled Christians are humble, verse 22, 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Show me a person who is obsessed with their individual rights, and I will show you a person who is not filled with the Spirit. Spirit-filled Christians do not worship the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. The Spirit produces humility in us to the point that we are eager to put ourselves for the good of others. And so he says you'll be subject to each other, understanding that this is fear for Christ as you humble yourself before the body. So if you're filled with drunkenness, it'll show up in your actions, wildness. And if you're filled with the Spirit, it will also show up in your actions. So now in verse 22, Paul turns his attention from the Spirit's work in the church to the Spirit's work in the home. He's saying in verse 22, which is the next sentence, by the way. The last sentence is be filled with the Spirit. The next sentence is what? If you're a Spirit-filled Christian, you will also be a Spirit-filled spouse. Did you know that the Holy Spirit doesn't stop working when you leave the sanctuary? He goes home with you. And Paul says if he goes home with you, he will, he will influence your actions in your living room and your dining room and your dorm room and your bedroom. He will enable you to be what Paul is describing here. So here's my point. My point is we come to this text because we read it at weddings and we think of vows and commitments and pledges and all of that is good. But today's text is not a list of duties. It's not just a list of chores. Many people think, oh, Ephesians 5 is, is telling a wife what to do for a husband and a husband what to do for his wife, when in reality, Ephesians 5 is telling you what the Holy Spirit does for husbands and wives. He's describing what, what God does within us. And Paul is not saying do these things to be filled with the Spirit. He's saying be filled with the Spirit so you can do these things. In fact, I'm convinced that we come to this text oftentimes and we go, but wives be subject, husbands love sacrificially. Pastor, that, I, I, that is so hard, that is so difficult, and if you're doing it in the flesh, you're right. It's impossible. That's why he said right before this, be filled with the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to help us and to humble us and to, to show us how to live. And Paul says, when the Spirit is in you, is filling you, 
It'll show up in your actions as a wife and as a husband and in your marriage. So let's briefly look at these three areas. The Spirit's work in wives and husbands and in marriage. Number one, he tells us in verses 22 to 24, a Spirit-filled wife submits to her husband. A spirit-filled wife submits to her husband. Verse 22, this is the next sentence after he just said, be filled with the Spirit. It's wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. If you notice, there's no verb in the original, verse 22. It's actually in italics because he's pulling it over from verse 21. So we're all to be subject to one another in the church. And now he turns to the home and he says, now in the home, wives have an extra duty to be subject, and that is to be subject to your own husbands. What does this mean? It means to line up under something. It's a military term that describes rank and position. Just as in a military, the privates line up under sergeants and sergeants come up under colonels. Without a clear chain of command in the military, the battlefield would be chaos. And so God says in the the trenches of marriage, he's established a chain of command, and it's wives coming up under the leadership of their husbands. By the way, this fits the larger context. If you just keep reading, he says wives to, to come up under their husbands, children come up under your parents, and slaves come up under your masters. If you're going to be a child, if you're going to be a... In all of those cases, that's how the Spirit guides us. So what does it mean to be subject? It means to humbly defer to authority. Now, I know that for some people, authority is a nine-letter, four-letter word. But my friends, authority is not bad. Authoritarianism is bad. But if we say that, if we assume that authority is bad, then we must assume that God is bad because he is the ultimate authority. And in the home, he has entrusted part of that authority to husbands. And Paul says, a spirit-filled wife will gladly recognize this is the chain of man that, command that God has established. Notice he says, be subject to your own husbands. Look at it carefully there. He does not say women submit to men. It doesn't say wives submit to all husbands, as some of like we might have heard earlier under the, the, the strict Sharia law. This is not a male-female issue. This is a husband-wife issue. It's not ladies submit to all men. It's ladies submit to your man, the one that God has placed in your life. And Paul seems to be clear that this could be misused or misunderstood or abused by some, so he adds an important phrase, verse 22, as to the Lord, that God has given husbands a functional authority in the home, but Christ is the one who has the ultimate authority over the Christian. And by the way, ladies, this this is a challenge to your motivation. Think about this. This is not some Disney fantasy where you look at your husband with big doleful eyes because he's, you know, some larger-than-life mythological, you know, Prince Charming that does everything perfect. And, and do. Paul is not saying here that you do this because your husband is the most important thing in the world. Paul says do this because Christ is the most important thing in the world. It's a matter of understanding what Christ is expecting of those that are following him. 
And so why is she to do this? Verse 23, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. At the private high school that I went to, we didn't, the guy in charge, we didn't call him the principal, we called him the headmaster, right? What is the headmaster? That was the person that, that led the school. Well, who leads the church? Paul is quite clear, Christ does. And in a marriage, who leads the wife? He's quite clear, the husband does. In fact, you can just use Paul's own analogy here. If you think about the human body, what, what's in charge of the rest of your body? It's your head, right? Your, your head's the thing that, that guides your arms and feet and legs and tells them, it gives direction and guidance to all of them. Your spleen's not the thing in charge, by the way, I don't know if your spleen is over here or over here or where it's at. Wherever it is, it's not the thing in charge, right? God has designed the body so that the, the head is in charge. And the organs don't rebel going, no, we want to be the organs go, okay. That's how God made it. And it functions accordingly. And the head listens to the body parts when they ache and hurt. And, and it makes d decisions based on that and puts all of that into consideration. And so he says here, likewise in the home, God has established a, an order. Just as Christ is over the church, so too the husband is the head of his wife. So to what extent is that? Well, that's verse 24. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So where do we draw this line? Notice that last phrase there, in everything. Paul is clear that a spirit-filled wife's submission is not only voluntary and sincere, but it is to be complete. He says it is to be in everything. You know how electronics come pre-programmed with certain settings in them? My Keurig coffee maker at home, every time I turn the thing on, it wants to make an 8-ounce cup of coffee. I want a 10-ounce cup of coffee. And every day, like for years, I have to beep, 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 and go in and tell the thing. It's got this screen, and I have to tell it what I want. Because why? That setting is like hardwired into it for 8 ounces. You see, what, what, what is my point? Paul is saying here, and God is saying here, that a wife's default setting should be to accept her husband's leadership, not to reject it. Re rejecting a husband's leadership should only be done when absolutely necessary out of a higher loyalty to Christ. If your husband's saying you can obey Christ or you can obey me, then you obey Christ. Otherwise, he says here that a wife is to be subject to her husband in everything. Think about it. There is no realm in which the church says, Jesus is Lord, but not over here. We're, we're going to submit, but not, we get to do this stuff over here. No, he's saying understand the relationship of the church and Christ and understand the role that God has given wives. So ladies, can I ask you, do you find yourself looking for loopholes to this? Well, he just doesn't understand what I do. Besides, I have good reasons to do what I want, and he, he just doesn't, he doesn't, just doesn't really, I'll decide what we do. Are you tempted to undermine your husband's leadership? Do you tell your kids things like, just don't tell your father I did this? You complain to your friends about your husband's shortcomings? You won't believe what he did, and, and, and gossip to your family? Or do you find ways to support and affirm and reassure him of your loyalty 
as you're led by the Spirit. Ladies, you want to you put a spark in your man's eye? Put a, a note on the bathroom mirror that says, I love you and thank God for your leadership. Paul says, you say, preacher, that, that sounds hard. If you're doing it in your own strength, it's impossible. That's why he says, be filled with the Spirit. There's also an instruction to husbands here, verses 25 to 31. Number two, he says, a Spirit-filled husband loves his wife. A Spirit-filled husband loves his wife. So Paul emphasized the wife's submission. You might expect him now to emphasize a husband's authority, but he doesn't. Paul throws us a curveball. Verse 25, husbands love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. We might expect it to say, husbands dominate your wives. Husbands manage your wives. Husbands rule your wives, manipulate your wives, bully your wives. No. He emphasizes the husband's responsibility to love. The word love here is found all throughout this passage that you'll see is that famous Greek word agape. It's not about romance or sex or flowers or candles. It's an enduring, lasting, obvious, permanent, compelling kind of love. It's a kind of love that's, that's, that's attractive. And it's a command of, of ongoing. It's not love her once and then move on, love her at your anniversary, then move on. No, it's, it's make it your lifestyle to love your wife. John Stott, who, by the way, was never married, he said of this text, quote, God is telling every husband to be a lover and not an ogre. When I read that, all I could think of is your husband more like Jesus or Shrek. That's, he might look like Shrek, but that's, that's not the question. The question is... Does he, does, he, does he act uh, like Jesus? Kent Hughes says there's no room in this word love here for intimidating or controlling. This is not me, Tarzan, you, Jane, a kind of relationship. No, it's a, it, it's a husband cherishing his wife. If, if we stop with the word love, it can be really fuzzy because, you know, love is what everybody wants it to be today. So Paul knows we need to know what does he mean by love. That's why he continues. And if you want the, the three words, Paul says the love that a husband has for his wife when under the influence of the Holy Spirit, it is sacrificing love, it is sanctifying love, and it is selfless love. Sacrificing, sanctifying, and selfless. Notice how it's sacrificing. Look at verse 25, and he says, he loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Sacrificed himself for her. There's a clip, some of you may have seen it. I think it's been passed around online. It's a rabbi talking about what love is. It's a really, really insightful illustration. He says, as a rabbi, he says, a man was eating fish one day, and the rabbi asked him, he says, why are you... Uh, why are you eating that fish? And the man says, because I love the fish. And he says, oh, you love the fish, so that's why you took it out of its water, you boiled it, killed it, boiled it, and you ate it. He said, you don't love the fish. You love yourself. You love your appetite. You love your stomach. And too often, he said, what we often define of as love is, is fish love. 
what can I get out of it? What good is in it for me? But, but Paul says here, no, no, when a husband is filled with the Spirit, it's not about what you do for me, it's about what can I do for you? What is in your best interest? What is for your good, even if it means laying down my life for you? It's also a sanctifying love, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. We could spend all day here, but just notice a couple things. Christ did not love the church because the church was perfect. Some men, you look at your wife after 10, 20, 30 years, and you think, well, she, her skin's not as smooth as it used to be. And, you know, she doesn't quite act like she used to act. Things have changed. Christ saw the church with her, with her spots and her wrinkles, and he loved her. And he loved her with such a love, notice, that he has dedicated himself so that despite her spots and wrinkles, he's going to bring her along to the point that what? She is in all of her glory and that she will be holy and blameless. In other words, Paul says the church is better off because of Christ's love. The church is in a better position because of Christ's leadership. Is that true, men, in your home? Is your wife a better, more faithful believer today because of your influence in your marriage? Does she have a better sense of, of self-esteem and image because of how you cherish her, as we heard earlier, being fearfully and wonderfully made? Or does she feel beat down because you, you criticize, you question, you, you complain and compare? That is not how Christ treats his church. It's also a selfless love. Verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Paul says, just as, just as naturally as you provide for and protect your own body, you should do that instinctively for your wife. You know, if you're working on tools and stuff, you don't put your hands in the machine because you protect your, you naturally protect your body. You wear gla glasses when you're working, right? You instinctively know, I've got I've to take some precautions and do that, which, which is going to protect my body from getting injured, from being hurt. And Paul says you should do the same for your wife because she's part of your body. You say, says who? Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Does that look familiar to anybody? There's that Genesis 2, that pesky passage coming back up again. Why does Paul quote this? Because it's the last phrase there. He says, every man cares for his own flesh. He cherishes his flesh. He nourishes his flesh. And Genesis 2, 24 says, when you're joined to your wife, you become one flesh. She's part of you in that way. And you should treat her that way. When your stomach growls, you feed it. You don't ignore it. You bandage wounds when you bleed. You're attentive and, and mindful. In fact, he uses that phrase, verse 20, no one ever hated his own flesh. Even doctors and therapists will tell you today, a person that, 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 that we have talk about self-cutting or self-mutilation, it, it, th those who do that, that's not normal. 
there's something desperately wrong, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it might be, there's, there's something off. And likewise, a man that would hurt his own flesh and or that being his wife, there's something wrong. Whether that abuse is emotional or spiritual or verbal or physical, he says there, no, that nobody does that unless something's way off, as, and particularly not a man who's filled with the Spirit. By the way, men, can I remind you, providing for your wife is more than just having a nine-to-five job, and protecting your wife is more than just owning a shotgun. Do you provide her with affirmation? Do, do, you, do you lead her in prayer? Do, 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 you, do you sacrifice for her and to build her up with gentleness and warmth and care? Do you use your arms and your strength to shelter her or to intimidate her? Listen, I, as I was thinking about this passage, it dawned on me, the church is never afraid of Christ. And shame on any husband who would leave his wife afraid and fearful and intimidate and bully. That is not the way of Christ. One of the best pictures that we have is what Christ did for the church on his last night before going to the cross. What did he do? He put on a towel and he got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. My friends, when Jesus did that, when he washed the feet of the disciples, that did not take away from his authority. That only solidified his authority. It only confirmed. And in seeing that, the church said, if, if you're going to serve in that way, then we'll, we'll, we'll follow you. If you're going to sacrifice in that way and show us that, and he says, I've left you an example to do likewise. So a spirit-filled wife submits as the church does to Christ, and a spirit-filled husband loves as Christ does to the church. One last thought in the closing verses here, number three. A spirit-filled marriage showcases the gospel. Paul brings it all to one like grand crescendo here at the very end. Now, it's true that every marriage displays the gospel. That's one of the points he's going to make. But I think if you follow Paul's logic, he's saying here that a spirit-filled marriage where there is a submissive husband and a loving, uh, excuse me, submissive wife and a loving husband, that is the clearest example of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 32. This Mystery is great. Literally in the original. A mega mystery, Paul says. He's not dumbfounded by this. He is awestruck at this thought. When, when Paul speaks of a mystery in the book of Ephesians, it's some secret that God finally told us. It's something that human beings couldn't figure out on our own, but we kind of knew it was there, but we couldn't figure it out until God eventually took the time to explain it. And Paul says here that, that, that this is a great mystery that has a, a, a profound implications. And what's the secret that we now have? The secret or the mystery is that every time we talk about marriage, we're actually talking about Christ and the church. He says that in verse 3 too, speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul is not saying that marriage is a mystery. I think Paul is saying the idea that marriage is illustrating Christ's relationship to the church, that was a secret. And nobody saw it coming. 
Maybe this is not insightful, but it struck me as insightful. So you be the judge. What did Paul just quote in verse 31? Genesis 2.24. This is day six of creation. There's no serpent. There's no fall. There's no temptation. There's no sin. So what that means is, on his wedding day, on day six of creation, the first Adam was already a picture of the second Adam. And he didn't even know it. And Eve didn't know it. And the animals didn't know it. Only God knew it. In fact, scholars all say that the first hint of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. The head of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. I don't want to take on the whole evangelical world of scholarship, but I think Paul is saying here, Genesis 2.24 is the first hint of the gospel. That, that, that God was putting a mystery in the world which is an incredible thought, because what does that mean? It means that before time itself began, but before the world even started, God was getting us ready for the coming of Christ. And nobody knew that marriage had this significance until Jesus comes along, and what does he do? His first miracle happens where? At a wedding. What does he call John the Baptist? My best man. What does he call himself in the parables? I'm the bridegroom. And he starts showing us this picture and unfolding in this, and, and they scratched their heads and didn't get it. Now, please, don't get this backwards. Think of it like a mirror, okay? When it comes to a mirror, there's, there's me, the thing, and then there's a reflection of me. That reflection, that's temporary. If I walk away, it disappears, it goes away. But I'm still here, right? So I'm the real thing, that's the temporary thing, that's the reflection. Paul is being quite clear here. The gospel is not a reflection of marriage. Marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Think about this. We sometimes seem to think that in creation, God made marriage and went, hmm, that was a pretty good idea. Maybe I should do something now to make marriage seem even cooler. Oh, I'll send my son to die for sinners. No. Paul said it was the opposite. That in eternity past, God determined that he would send his son to get sinners, to die for them, to sacrifice for them, to bleed for them. And he would bring out a, a, a sinful, the, the sinners from all the parts of the world, and they would come to him through his death and resurrection. And through his death and resurrection, they would have a joyful, satisfying, loving, permanent relationship. And God says, I've got to figure out a way to show the world what that amazing thing's going to be. Oh, I got it. I'll create marriage. The gospel is the thing. Marriage is the reflection of the thing. So what Paul is saying here, and here's the challenge. For many of us, our view of marriage is simply too small. For some of us, we think, okay, the goal of marriage, get married, have kids, picket fence, 2.5 children, you know, two-car garage, nice this, make the money, retire, move to Florida. Woo, did it. 
And Paul, now listen, all of those things can be blessings of marriage. They can be benefits that we absolutely enjoy in every sense and in every way. But listen to me, Paul is making it abundantly clear here. Those things are not the goal. Those things are not the purpose. Your marriage exists to testify to the gospel of Christ. This is why I'm I'm convinced, if you think of verse 32 deeply, this is why our marriages, they don't need less theology, they need more to be richer. You say, what do you mean by that? Here, I'm going to tell you what I mean. Men, you want to be a good husband? I, 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 I am all for couples reading books on marriages, communication, finances, whatever you got to. By all means, do that stuff. But listen, you want to be a good husband? Go Read John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ, or some book like that, and meditate deeply on Christ's early mornings and late nights, bathing the church in prayer. Think of all the miracles that he did and the long hours that he gave himself to to heal the sick, when only one in ten would even thank him for the work that he did. When when he gave himself with with bleeding from his own scalp as as if sweats and giving his hands willingly to go to the cross and the agony and the pain and the sacrifice that he did, even when the church didn't understand, when the disciples didn't understand, and look at what he did in pouring out his life for the good of the church, and then you'll know what it means to be a husband. To be a husband, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despising the shame. Consider him who endured hostility from sinners and kept entrusting himself to God so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. And ladies, you want to be a better wife? Go, Go, I got one here. Go get a hymn book. And, and, and listen to how the church talks about Christ. We, 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 what do we sing? Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. What else do we sing? Leaning on the everlasting arms. What, what is it talking about in the song? I have blessedness, I have peace, safe and secure from all alarms. Man, you know what your wife wants? There it is right there. To be safe and secure and protected and cared for. And the church says to Jesus every Sunday, we trust you. And when we do this, church family, we're not saying... Look at how awesome our marriages are. We're saying, look at how awesome the gospel is. And so with that grand thought in place, Paul brings us to the close of our series and the passage. Verse 33, nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So if you want to be the best example of the gospel that you can possibly be, listen, men, 
be a Christ-like husband. Ladies, be a church-like wife. You say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but that is hard. It is hard. And in your own strength, it's impossible. But with God, the Holy Spirit in you, with God, all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, it does challenge us in our homes, in our marriages, in our families and lives. And we ask, Lord, that you would, as this text says, wash us with the word. Lord, there's some dirt and filth of sin that remains. The, the filth of disrespect, the, the filth of selfishness, the filth of jealousy, the filth of bitterness, the filth of unforgiveness. God, wash us through the word that as husbands and wives we might be made more pure and sanctified through what we've heard. That we might fulfill this grand and glorious picture of your love for us. And may we rest, abide in hope that your love is good and that we can show that to each other. Bless our marriages, bless our families, bless our homes, but Lord, above all, we pray, bless our witness that we might make known this mystery of Christ and the church. For it's in your name we pray, amen.